I want to begin this morning continuing a little personal chapter of my own journey in Christ and take, us, take you back to when I was in junior high and I was um, at a public school. I was probably 12 years old at the time. And um, I was thinking about these things of the Lord. And I wanted to know Him, and I wanted Him to come to me. In sixth grade, I had visited on a field trip a Muslim mosque in, in Washington, D.C. And on the bus ride home, I had leaned my head against the window. And I, after the entire tour through the mosque, I knew in my heart I wanted the Lord God of Israel. I wanted to know Him, and I wanted Him to come to me. And so it had continued since that time, and I was growing, and I was learning, and I was seeking, and I was asking, and I was thinking about it a lot. And so I would cut class when I was in junior high to walk across the football field, and I would go through a parking lot at the strip mall, and I would go through a neighborhood, and I would go to my local church. And the church, this was my, our family's church where we attended there in Washington. It was Fourth Presbyterian Church. And I'm sure that the Lord um, thought that was a bit incongruous for me to be skipping class to go be with him in the church, but um, I hadn't worked all of that out yet. And so I would uh, go over to the church, and I would go, and there's huge doors in the front entrance, and they kept the doors open, and I would go in, and I would be all alone in the sanctuary. And I would always go and sit in the fifth pew back, and I would move over, one seat, so I would leave some space for him, and I would get on my knees. And unfortunately, in the Presbyterian Church, we don't have kneelers, so uh, I think that's an improvement we could make there, but I would get on my knees, and I would begin to ask God for different things. And at this time, I had learned about Solomon, who had asked God for wisdom, and I began to ask God to give me wisdom. Above all things, I thought, this would be a good thing. I thought, well, if Solomon can do it, I could do it. And I asked him to give me wisdom in my dealings with my friends and wisdom in my dealings with my family. As you know, those are very tumultuous years. And it was formative for me, and it was difficult times, and I, wasn't trying, I was trying to figure it all out. It was the 60s. It was difficult. My boyfriend was dealing drugs and starting to, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, where are we going with this? And... Uh, and so I was trying to figure it all out, and um, I asked the Lord to give me wisdom. And I don't know if he did or not. I know that now I am here speaking to you guys at chapel, but I don't know if he gave it to me or not. But I know that from that point on, my whole, all the days of my life have been different. It changed me because of my focus and the desire of my heart. And the Lord has come to me and been my friend, and he got me through. And uh, that brings us to the story that I want to talk to you about today. We, um, my mother was famous for saying that nothing good happens after midnight. All through the teen years, my friends would pick me up, we'd be heading out, and she would be very right there at the door to remind me, now, Becky, nothing good happens after midnight. And I would always... Uh, assure her that wherever I was at midnight, I would give her a call to let her know. If I wasn't in the house by midnight, I'd call and let her know where I was so she would know I was safe and that something good might be happening out there. Um, 
But I also was reminded, and I, I would remind her that I knew at least two people that something good had happened to them late at night. One was Samuel, the great prophet Samuel, who first heard God's voice calling him in the night. And the next one was Solomon, who uh, also prayed to the Lord, and the Lord God came to him by night to answer his prayers. Now, in way of setting the scene for today, I want, I'm going to read to you a, a little bit out of Chronicles. But um, King David had prepared and, and to build the temple in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant had been brought to Jerusalem, and he had created a tent for it, but the altar was still in Gibeon. And so he had uh, made preparation. It's like his last will and testament. He had gotten all of the gold and silver and treasures and all of the supplies were in place for him to build the temple of Israel so that God and the ark could dwell there. But David was not able to complete the temple and it was passed to his son Solomon. And King Solomon went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices to God there. And I think, I, I don't know exactly, I think he had to do like 22,000 cattle, 100,000 lambs, something like that. And he offered them, and then he went to prayer. And God came to him in the night, it said, and said, Solomon, ask whatever you will, and I will give it to you. And Solomon, and we all know, asked for wisdom to lead the people of Israel, to make him a great king to be able to discern and guide the people of Israel. And God so, was so pleased that he'd asked for wisdom instead of riches and wealth. He said, I'm going to give you wisdom, I'll give you everything else too. And so Solomon began to build the temple. And the temple was completed, but there was one problem. He wasn't sure that God would come to dwell in the temple. And so Solomon began to pray. And he prayed for 28 long verses. You can read it in Second Chronicles. But the prayer went something like this. And I'm going to read you two of the little verses, okay? He, it went something like this. He says, And oh now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word that you promised to my father David come true. And then he has a little moment of pause. He's worrying. And he says, But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I've built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Oh, Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name. May you hear the prayer, your servant prayer, praise towards this place. This was the prayer that Solomon went on and on for 28 verses, begging the Lord, hear my prayer, come dwell in the temple, be here with the people. But he wasn't sure. Then God came to him at night. And this is what God said. The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer. And I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no more rain or command locusts to devour the land or send the people and plagues among them, 
It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Now I'm going to suggest to you that in my journey in trying to know and understand the love of God and what that means for me practically, that I've discovered that God is not much different now. In fact, Hebrews says that God and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same. I think we are also the same. I think we are very similar as the same people then. The biggest difference is the temple and the sacrifices. Solomon had to bring 102,000 lambs. Finally, God gave Jesus Christ. If it weren't for Jesus Christ, we'd all be in the livestock business trying to just keep up with the demands of the sacrifices. But Jesus Christ did that for us, so that has dramatically changed. We no longer have to bring cattle and rams before we can come into chapel to become right with God. The other thing that changed is the temple. Let me read to you now in 1 Corinthians 6.19. It says, Do you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are the temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16 for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. We're the temple. We're the temple now. The sacrifice is Jesus Christ, but the personality and character of God has not changed. I think he still likes and desires and feels the same about what he wants from us. So what does he want from us? I want to go through it a little bit with you. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Humility. i to do my notes here. <laughs> I'm moving along. Humility is a, is a uh, characteristic of the heart. It comes with understanding. Humility begins... This is, this is critical. You might have to think about this later. It, it begins by having a proper relationship to the truth. Truth knowing who you are and who He is. He is God. And you are not. Again... Humility is knowing who he is and who you are. That's where it begins. It's understanding what the truth is and relating to it properly. It's the attitude of the heart. That's how we come. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Prayer Our entire life in Christ depends on prayer. 
Prayer is to your spiritual life what breathing is to your physical life. If you, if you are swimming under the water and you stay under for a little while, you're aware of your breathing, aren't you? If you're running up a hill, if you're hiking in a high altitude, you're very aware of your breath. If you run up the steps, you're aware of your breathing. If you're holding your breath, you're aware of your breathing. But you're not so aware of it now, sitting here in chapel, walking back and forth to class, sitting. What about when you're sleeping? You aware of your breathing then? Not so much. Prayer is like this. Sometimes you're aware of it and sometimes you're not. But do you know that if you stop breathing for four or five minutes physically, you're going to be dead. The Bible says pray without ceasing. I think it's the exact same thing. I think if you stop praying for four or five minutes, you're going to be dead spiritually. It says humble yourselves and pray. Your entire life is prayer. Seek my face. This has to do with focus. We talked a little bit about it on Wednesday. Keeping this focus is the Father's direct request that you don't wander too far off. I have three children. When I am uh, instructing them, when they were little, I, I would take them to the park and I would tell them, now don't go too far off. Make sure you can always see where I am. If you can't see me, you've gone too far. Make sure you can always see me. They got a little older and they want to go to the mall. We'd go to the mall. We'd be in a store. They'd like to go a little and drift off by themselves. They want a little independence. I say, fine. Just make sure you can always see me. I'm taller than they are. They should be able to look up and find where I am. I said, make sure you can see me. Then you'll know that you haven't gone too far. Then they can hear my voice if I call. This is the same thing with God. He's saying the same thing. He says, seek my face. Make sure you can see me at all times. If you can't see him, maybe you've gone too far off. Turn from your wicked way. I want to I stop for a moment and return to a point about focusing on the, on, on the face of God. I want you to try an experiment in your dorm. Do you know that if you fill your eye with light, your whole body is full of light? We talked about this on Wednesday. And if your eye is full of darkness, your whole body is full of darkness. You know, if you look into a bright light, like even a light bulb will work. And, you, and I'll say sometimes to, to some young people, I'll say, you know, look into this light bulb. Take a lamp, like just take a lamp and look right into it. And they go, oh, I can't, it's too bright. You know, oh, oh, it hurts my eye. I say, no, no, keep looking, keep looking at the light. Look right into the bulb. And they, they say, I can't, you know, it's hurting. I say, keep looking until you can read the wattage on the bulb. You know, and pretty soon they start to relax. And they go, okay, you know, and, and their focus comes in and... And the light begins to adjust to their eye. And pretty soon they can read the wattage. As soon as they can read the wattage, I say, now look away. And you know, you look away and everything is blurry. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The other things around don't become so important when you keep your eye full of light. When you seek his face. When your eye is full of light, your whole body is full of light. And when your body is full of light, you know you're in him and he's in you. Then turn from your wicked way. What's the wicked way? That's an interesting question. Well, without getting too in-depth on this, I, I would suggest that the wicked way is our way. The Bible says that there is a way that seems right to a man, and it is the way unto what? Death. It's the way unto death. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, and it is the way unto death. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. When you're focused on something, like let's say you're focused on um, making money, and you decide this is what you want to do, and then you turn... To focus on Jesus Christ, you have changed your focus. You have turned to Him. In Thessalonians, it said that the believers there turned to God from idols. No one had to convince them to turn away from the idols to come over to the church or to come over to Christ. They saw Him, they turned to Him. He was passing by. They turned to look at him, and naturally their focus changes. They turned from their idols. They turned to something. They turned to God from idols. That's why he says, seek my face. It doesn't say, turn from your wicked way and then seek my face. It says, seek my face, seek my face and turn from your wicked way. Then... Shall we hear from heaven? For, he'll forgive our sins and heal the land. Is that what it says? That isn't what it says. It says, then I shall hear from heaven. I'll heal. I'll forgive your sins and heal the land. Most people think that we're the ones that'll hear from heaven. Even if you know the verse... And you know it says he'll hear from heaven. You think it's going to be you. Most people think they're the ones that are going to get the message. That isn't what the Bible says. The Bible indicates that he is the one that hears from heaven. He is the one that forgives the sins. And he is the one that will heal the land. Because this is about him. It's not about you. He has just made a prescription for what it is that would please him. What says, I love you to God? The things that say, I love you, is humble yourself and pray. Seek his face. Turn from your wicked way. Then he will hear from heaven. He will hear from heaven. He will forgive your sin and heal the land. 
In Matthew 28, 16, the 11 disciples were with Jesus for the last time before he ascended into heaven. And he said to them, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth is given unto blank. Go ye therefore in all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do everything. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you even unto the end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth is given unto blank. Go ye therefore into all the world. Who did he give the power to? Who gets the authority? You know, I asked that question in private little groups, and they all get baffled, you know, they're not really sure. Suddenly they're thinking, well, all authority in heaven and earth given unto you. Go ye therefore into all the world. But that's not what it says. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. Jesus Christ is speaking to them. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name, discipling them. You know why? Because we don't have the authority. We don't get the power. He has it. And he lives in you. The secret of the nations is simply this. Christ in you, bringing with him the hope of glory. This isn't about you. This has always been about him. He hears from heaven. He forgives the sins. That's what I meant about humility, understanding who you are and who he is. He's everything. In all things, he has the supremacy, Colossians. And it's the same way when he was instructing the disciples. What was the secret? He was sending them into the world. He said he'd give them the comforter, but he was sending them out into the world to preach. And he had given them no authority and no power, except what? He said, I will go with you, even unto the end of the age. He is in you. You are the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. I'm going to conclude with the uh, end of the story about the temple. Did God come to dwell in the temple? I'll read it to you. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices because God was pleased with the sacrifice and he's pleased today with the sacrifice Jesus did for us. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And that is exactly what he wants to do to you. If my people will, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, Turn from your wicked way, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. And he did it. He wants to do it for you. Okay. We could take a few questions if you want. I think Bart has set it up so that we could do a few questions. That's a little risky.
These might be questions about what Becky's spoken on this morning, or they might be questions simply about following Christ or spiritual disciplines or the life of Christ. I don't feel like you have to limit it to questions about her talk this morning. There's some question and answer mics here, or you can just stand where you are, and I'll repeat the question so people can hear it. Next. You must have covered it all. You got it all. <laughs> I forgot to tell you we were going to have questions, so we'll let you think a minute. Pardon? Thoughts, questions? Yeah. Great. Okay. June is asking that, saying that Becky has a uh, a way of encouraging people right in her own home, taking people into their own home, and can she talk about that process a little? When people come and they want to know and follow Jesus Christ, and they're trying to focus on Him in their lives. It's interesting to me that uh, in, in our case in Washington, they come and they sometimes spend six months or a year, and they'll arrive and they'll have 14 trunks of clothes and 35 pictures of their puppy and their quilt that their grandmother made them, and they have pictures of their family and all of these things, and then they start to set up their room. I'm sure many of you have done this in your dormitory. And you set it all up and you get all the things you know and love and that make the place familiar so that you might not be homesick, or at least this is the thing you're trying to create. You're trying to create your home situation right where you are. The interesting thing is, is all of these things prove to be distractions. Anything that is calling your heart away from the love of God is a distraction for you. And in a very interesting way, we encourage the people to pack up some of that stuff for that period of their life. They can remember what their mom and dad looks like. They know the love of their puppy. The quilt will be there when they get home. And if they pack it up and send it home, it helps them just physically to focus on what they really want to do with their lives because it's what they've said they want to do. And this is probably true with some of you. Our exterior lives are so crowded and cluttered with the stuff of life and the sentiment of life and the things that pull at your heartstrings, that it makes it very difficult to focus on Him. So it is an encouragement we often do with the, the young people or old people or middle people or anybody to wrap up some of the material and external things in their life that cause a distraction. Anything that would keep you from being able to see the face of God clearly, send it home. You don't need it. You don't want it. I think that's what June's talking about. Other questions? He asked if she could expound on the idea of praying unceasingly. It's my belief that you're praying all the time, just like breathing. That if you're in... Uh, 
First of all, God doesn't only hear the conversation that you pray audibly or silently in your head towards him. He hears all the conversation. Once you've asked him to dwell in you and come in you and put on the mind of Christ, transform your mind from within, he's there. So he is participating conversationally and relationally with you all the time. Everything is a communication with him, even when you're not aware of it, like the breathing. So your whole life is a prayer. Nonverbal communication is over 80% of all communication. It's the same with God. You don't have to say anything verbally to be talking to him. That's one of the great mysteries of God. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach Christ to everyone and use words only when necessary. Words aren't necessary for communication. And it's the same with prayer. Prayer is your life-sustaining force in your spiritual walk. Does that answer it a little bit? Okay, other follow-up? Got about another two minutes there, yeah. The question was, what are your views on compromise when, when you're uh, tempted to compromise your faith in a relationship or at a party where the two examples she used? My view is it's sad. But, you know, the, the difficulty is, you know, God, God doesn't see it quite the way we do. He's not um, pleased, but he's in the relationship. He's right there with you in the compromise. He's with you while you're doing it because... He said he will be with you. But uh, I, th I think you have to continue to understand that he's, he's in you. And you don't need to... You just come back. That's the salvation of Jesus Christ. I'm not certain exactly what you're asking, what my view is about the compromise or how... Well, I think, you know, all of us come to these choices. These are the choices you make all the way along, and he is going to be with you in it. And I think you don't need to, I think you need to worry about it. I think you need to think it through. But he's there. I don't know much more. Maybe we could talk about it later. <laughs> okay, great. We'll take one more question. I think, it, I think it gives him pleasure when you do it. I think he delights in knowing those things. For example, when my children come to me, they could be wishing and hoping for a bicycle. Now, I happen to know that around the age five and six, they're hoping for a bicycle. 
I know that that's happening in them. And it's interesting that all children sort of want that. They start to see those bicycles and they think that's going to be great. But there's something wonderful when they finally come to me and say, Mom, what I really would love to have is a bicycle. And it delights me to be able to answer and say, well, Dad and I will be thinking about that. Maybe we'll work on that. And in time, in the right time, to be able to give them a bicycle gives them pleasure, but me far more. Right? So there's something wonderful when they articulate it. I believe the Lord is the same. Thank you, Becky. Let's thank Becky for her sharing. Thank you.